not just in theaters in the fall of 2008, but that film will be shown next Sunday at 7 o'clock right in this room. We are going to be hosting a screening of that. It is a free screening, so we're inviting all of you and then anyone else you would like to invite to come to that screening of the film, 7 o'clock p.m. next Sunday night. I'll talk more about that in a little bit, but, uh, but I want to get into this discussion this morning. The Gospel of John has a story in it where Jesus uh, is talking with his disciples. And Jesus has been doing some pretty incredible things. He's been sharing these messages that have resonated with people on a deep level where they feel attracted to Jesus and feel like he is talking about things that, that I resonate with and make me feel like my life can be better. Jesus has been feeding hungry people. He's produced food essentially out of thin air uh, and, and fed thousands of people. So all of these people have been following Jesus around the countryside. Jesus has this, this mob, essentially, following everywhere that he goes. Uh, and in response to this, Jesus gives this teaching, where he, uh, he, I won't go into exactly what he teaches, but it offends pretty much everyone there. And everyone starts leaving, because they're like, what? This guy is into something that, that, that we just can't go along with. We don't understand what he's talking about anymore. We're out of here. So they all start leaving. They're, they're abandoning him, moving on. Jesus turns to his closest disciples, and he's like, are you going to leave me as well? And John records Peter saying this, speaking on behalf of the rest of the, the disciples, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I'll be the first to admit that this series is no fun. This series is no fun. It's a beautiful Sunday morning. You could be picking apples. You could be sitting by the window, reading a book. You could be mowing your lawn for the last time. There are a thousand things that you could be doing right now other than being here. Other than listening to a series about having your life ruined, instead of talking about human trafficking, which is something that no one wants to talk about, you could be doing a thousand other things. But the reason we're doing this series, and I think that the reason that you're here is because you have the same response that Peter has. There are all these other things. Jesus is offensive, but I don't know what else to do. This is the only place that I can find life, is within the words and life of Jesus this is the only place that I can turn. So that's why we're doing this series. Because when we encounter Jesus, he transforms us in such a way where no matter what we come upon, no matter what it means to follow him, we have to do it because there's nowhere else to turn. Because we know that this is the only life that we're capable of living because of who Jesus is. If you have your Bible, I want to turn to Genesis 1. It is way toward the left. In your Bible, Genesis chapter 1 is where we're at, and we're going to read two scriptures to get us going this morning, 26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says this, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move on the, along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
Who, in whose image was humanity created? God's. What humans were created in God's image? Just the men? No. Just the women? No. Both of them. Is it just the adults that are created in God's image? No, it's not. It's everyone. This is what's called an origin story. An origin story is what sets our frame of reference for everything else we encounter. Growing up, my parents divorced when I was 12 years old. Uh, Before that, my dad could have lived in a different house because he was marginally part of my life. It wasn't that he was a bad bad dad. He worked an odd job, a job that had odd hours. And he, um, he, he lived a life and made decisions that took him out of my life for much of my childhood. That's part of my origin story, that my parents are divorced. I have a huge heart for single mothers because I was raised by one. You can't talk about teenagers experiencing divorce and my heart doesn't break a little bit because that's part of my origin story. For us, this is part of our origin story. If we believe that the Bible is God's word, if we believe that this is where we come from, that God created us, Genesis 1 is for us an origin story. This is why I think there have been a few conversations of, man, talking about this on a day that there's baptism, this is a tough one. But this is also part of why this is a beautiful thing to do on the day when we have a baptism because part of the origin story for us tells us that an infant is made in the image of God. And this is a unique part of human history that we live in where we believe and value that to this extent. Throughout history, children haven't been valued in this way of saying they are something that is good and is beautiful and God's spirit can be on them and they are a wonderful thing. Throughout history, that hasn't always been the case. And in other parts of the world right now, that's not the case. But the reason we're talking about this today is because that is what we believe that every person is made in God's image and that every person has value because of that. Now, slavery is a tough word, particularly for us as Americans, because we have a very shady past when it comes to slavery as Americans. We have a part of our history where we used people from Africa as slaves to advance the development of our nation. And then, as that became an illegal activity within our country and was outlawed, we still had issues that followed race relations in our country through the middle of our last century and even up till today. There is not resolution around race in our country. So we have this baggage that we carry with us when we approach the topic of slavery around something that happened in our history and still affects us today. But slavery is not something that's in the past, and we're not going to talk about the history of American slavery, even though it is something worth exploring and worth discussing. But what I want to talk about this morning is modern slavery, And particularly, we're going to get into, I want to explain one term, of human trafficking, because there's an aspect of slavery in the modern world that um, that has come to a lot of people's attention. It's the idea of human trafficking. And human trafficking is the illegal movement of people, mostly women and children, from one place where where they are illegally acquired to another place where they are illegally sold and consumed. And it's not unintentional that that term has a lot of parallels to the idea of drug trafficking. 
because drugs are an illegal substance that are usually acquired illegally and then moved illegally, sold illegally, and consumed illegally. But we're not talking about a substance when it comes to human trafficking. We're talking about a person. So that's what human trafficking is. Human trafficking for us, when we talk about our origin story, is a denial of Genesis 1. Human trafficking says that this person is not of eternal value because they're made in the image of God. This person is of monetary value because there's something to be gained from exploiting them. That's what human trafficking does. It claims that a person, particularly women and children, are of more monetary value than they are of of eternal value. As a people of God, we need to be aware of and discuss human trafficking because of our origin story, because we believe that people are of value. There's this young man. His name was Telemachus a long time ago. Uh, Telemachus was probably of Turkish descent, what we would consider Turkish descent. He was from Asia Minor. It wasn't Turkey then. It was part of the Roman Empire. Telemachus was most likely a young man, probably in his 20s. And Telemachus was a Christian. He believed that the way of Jesus was to love people more than you love yourself. He believed that the way of Jesus was to lay down your life so that others might live. Well, Telemachus, as he grew and developed, he began to see that in his country, people were being exploited, that people were not being loved, that people weren't being valued, that people were being used for entertainment and for monetary value rather than being valued because they were made in the image of God. And that exploitation for him, he saw happen in the form of the gladiatorial games. So we're familiar with the idea of the gladiatorial games, right? You've got this gigantic arena and these two buff guys in lots of armor and helmets dueling it out, duking it out, ultimately to the death. There were exceptions, but that was usually what happened. Well, the problem is, that's the Hollywood version. The reality of it was that these were people, sometimes men, sometimes women, sometimes children, who were slaves. There were people who were trafficked from one part of the world, who were taken into custody, removed from their families without their own consent, without their own will, and then exploited for other people's entertainment. And while some gladiators did gain exceeding amounts of wealth and amazing popularity, they were not their own people. They were still slaves owned and exploited by someone else for the entertainment of the masses. So Telemachus, recognizing that this was an affront to Genesis, he decided he was going to do something about it. He didn't know exactly what he was going to do, but he traveled from Turkey. He traveled all the way to Rome. And Telemachus is, is a historical figure. We, we know that he existed. Now, some of the accounts differ slightly on some, some details, but this is essentially what happened as, as far as we can piece it together. Telemachus, not knowing exactly what he was going to do when he got to Rome, being that he's a 20-something-year-old guy showing up to the largest, most powerful city in the world at the time, shows up and he gets swept into the Colosseum with the crowd ends up near the top of the rim of the Colosseum as the gladiatorial games begin. And he's standing there not knowing exactly what to do. So he does the only sensible thing that he can come up with. He begins shouting. He calls from the top, Stop! In the name of Jesus, stop! 
and starts hurling himself down the, the rim of the Colosseum over the crowds of people tumbling down, yelling, stop, in the name of Jesus, stop, as these gladiators are going at each other, trying to take each other's lives for the entertainment of these crowds that is now a Christian empire, by the way. Throwing himself, yelling, stop, in the name of Jesus, stop. And he gets to the edge and falls over into the arena and gets himself between the two gladiators and yells, stop, in the name of Jesus, stop. Now, it's interesting. The crowd didn't know exactly what to do with this because part of the games was often a jester, someone who was comic relief in the midst of the bloodshed. And they didn't know for sure if this guy was for real or not. But as they realized what he was saying, that he was calling for the games to be ended, they began to boo and jeer him because he was interrupting their entertainment. They were there to see blood be shed, not to have some religious fanatic tell them to stop and think about what they were doing. So now there are two different accounts of what happens that the ancient sources have for us, either of them equally horrific. One of them says that at that point the crowd turned on him and stoned him right there to death took up whatever they could find, threw it at him, and killed him there on the floor of the arena. The other one has the account that the gladiators, not knowing exactly what to do with this man, turned to the crowd. And because the gladiators' lives depended on their favor with the crowd, because if a gladiator could turn to the crowd in the midst of being defeated and put down his weapon and throw up his hands, if he had fought valiantly, the crowd might cheer him and the, the Caesar or a senator, whoever was in attendance, may give him a thumbs up to survive or a thumbs down for the other gladiator to kill him. So the the gladiators knew this part of the game. So part of the story is that they turned to the audience and realizing that the audience had turned against Telemachus, slew him themselves, drove their swords into him and killed him on the floor of the arena. Either one, either historical account makes the same point that Telemachus, in an effort to ward off Slavery, in an effort to respond to the fact that every human being is created in God's image and deserves to be treated accordingly, he gave his life. Now, historians argue about how the events that followed this transpired exactly, but either way, the result's the same. Within a few days, the emperor signed a decree outlawing gladiatorial games, and there were never gladiatorial games fought again in Rome. Some historians attribute this decision that the emperor made directly to Telemachus. Some say Telemachus was just a catalyst for events that were already long in place. But either way, the events of human history changed because a Christian was willing to go into the Colosseum literally and say, stop, in the name of Jesus, this has to stop because this is a denial of who these people are as created beings in the image of God. Human trafficking today is extraordinary. The the statistics are difficult to come by because traffickers aren't filling out census forms. It's an illegal activity. So the statistics are hard to come by. Generally, the people who do the statistics say, we believe we're underestimating this, maybe by something like 25%. 
So the statistics are hard to come by, but this is, is roughly what we've been able to come up with as far as what the numbers are on human trafficking and slavery today. Free the Slaves estimates that there are 27 million slaves in the world today. 27 million people who are held as slaves. It's an estimated 2.5 million people that are in slavery, including sexual exploitation, at any given time as a result of trafficking. These are not people who are held slavery locally. These are people who've been moved across space, taken from one place and moved to another to be enslaved. There are an estimated 1.2 million children taken and trafficked every year into slavery. 1.2 million. That is 74 school buses every day full of children taken from their homes, taken from their lives, and brought into slavery. 74 school buses. How many of you pick up your children from school at any point in life have picked up their children? How many of you have seen one of those big yellow school buses ever? All right, a few of us. 74 of those full of children every single day taken from their lives and sold into slavery. That is six American elementary schools emptied every day for children to be moved into slavery. In that slavery, they become prostitutes, beggars, forced laborers, military soldiers, domestic servants, forced into illegal adoption, or forced into marriage. The majority of trafficking victims are between the ages of 18 to 24. 95% of victims experience physical or sexual violence during their trafficking. 43% of victims are forced into commercial sexual exploitation, of whom 98% are women and girls. 32% of victims are used for forced economic exploitation. 56% are women and girls. It's estimated that $31.6 billion dollars was made last year in human trafficking alone. Sorry, not last year. That's 2008 statistics, I believe. In 2006, there were only 5,068 prosecutions of human traffickers. Of those 5,808 prosecutions, only 3,160 convictions were brought throughout the world. That means that there was one conviction... One conviction of one person for every 800 people trafficked. This is a crime that's going virtually unpunished. This needs to stop. And as people who believe in Genesis 1, as people who believe in the way of Jesus... This needs to stop. If you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 25, uh, 25 through 28 is what I want to look at. It says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the the dish, and then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus is, is scolding religious people because they have lived their lives in such a way where they have paid all sorts of attention to the religious exterior of their lives. They've paid all sorts of attention to doing the right thing religiously. They have, they have ordered their lives in such a way where, by all appearances, they are godly people. But on the inside, they've been dead because their souls haven't been transformed. They haven't loved the things that God loves. They haven't hated the things that God hates. They haven't had their hearts broken by the things that breaks God's heart. Now, as American Christians, I believe that we've heard this scripture and we've responded to it. As American Christians, we have all sorts of ways to have our hearts transformed, to have our souls remade. We have music, we have books, we have podcasts, we have small groups, we have retreats. We have all of these things designed to transform our hearts, to change us on the inside. We've taken Jesus seriously in his words here. I heard this story Recently, and it's a fantastic story, so I'm totally stealing it from this guy, Peter Rollins, I'll give him credit. Uh, it's, a, it's a parable he made up. There was this border, and these border guards worked at this border, and there was this man who came to their border every day for years. Now, when this man would come to the border to cross the border, every day he would have this wheelbarrow. And in this wheelbarrow, there would be all sorts of stuff. It would always be junk. Now, these border guards knew that their job was to find anything of value that somebody crossing the border might have so that they could tax it. And their job was to make sure that people didn't move things illegally across the border, things that didn't belong in one country, move it to the next country. Well, every day, this man would come with this wheelbarrow full of junk to the border and go across, and they knew that this guy was moving something. So every day, they'd shake him down. They'd dump out the wheelbarrow, go through all the stuff, but it was just garbage. You know, it literally looked like he'd taken garbage cans and dumped them in there. And they'd, they'd search him, and they could never find everything. Day after day for years, this man would come across the border with that wheelbarrow full of stuff, and they could never figure out what it was that he was smoking across the border. Well, years go, back, go past, and one of the border guards retires, and he goes off into retirement, and then years after that, he's an old man, and he's at a pub. And he looks up across the pub at this man who comes in, and it's the wheelbarrow guy. And he sits down, and he sees what he's drinking. He buys him a drink, and he comes over, and he sets the drink down on the table, and he says, you can have that drink if you tell me what you're smuggling. He said, I'm retired. I've been out of it for a long time. No consequences here. I just need to know. What was it that you were bringing across the border all those times for all those years. The guy takes the drink, takes a long drink, sets it down, he says, wheelbarrows. It's <laughs> a great story, isn't it? Back up just a, a couple of verses. Matthew 23, verse 20 says that, 23 says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You, uh, that's where he stops there for this purpose. We've, in a lot of ways, become the opposite of the Pharisees. We've spent so much time turning our, towards our hearts, turning in toward our lives. As American Christians, we've consumed our spiritual transformation into what happens on the inside of us. We've become like the border guards. We're so focused on what's inside the wheelbarrow, we've neglected the fact that the wheelbarrow is right there in front of us. We've, we've invested our spiritual lives at the transformation of our hearts while our lives remain the same. Our wheelbarrows need to be transformed as well. We need to look at the exteriors of our lives and say, is this the life that God has called me to? My heart is changed my attitude is changed. My soul has been reborn. Is my wheelbarrow, is the exterior of my life the life that God would have me live? Am I paying attention to what is right there in front of me? The way of Jesus is what happens when your heart grieves over the things that, God's heart, that grieve God's heart and you do the things that are good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to prisoners, give sight to the blind, and free the oppressed. Jesus would simply put it that we do the former without neglecting the latter. This is the life we're called to. Now, when we talk about human trafficking, this is overwhelming. I don't think anyone in here can look at all of this, hear these numbers and go, oh, well, that's nice, but it doesn't affect me. I think all of us, our hearts break over this. This disturbs us on a deep level, but what do we do? How do we approach this? And this is something we have to to work at. Let me say this. You can't leave here today and go transform all of this by yourself. This is a process that each of us needs to be in. But here are some action steps. So if you've got those green sheets and you want to fill in these things, um, here are some things that you you can do with that. The first one there is seek information on human trafficking. Just to seek information. One of the greatest things we can do is, is become informed on the issue. Because as we come, become more and more informed, it will transform the exterior of our life. As we become more familiar with the issue of human trafficking, we will see ways that we can make inroads to making a difference in it. So one of the things you can do is seek information. There are, at the bottom, a number of online resources where you can go uh, to find out more information, to sign up for email lists where these organizations will send you regular emails about things that they're doing and ways that you can make a difference. One of them I neglected to put on there, which I kicked myself when I realized I didn't put it on there. Uh, So write this one down, is the International Justice Mission. IJM, they're a beautiful organization. They work within the legal system to prosecute people who are involved in slavery and human human trafficking. So if you're a lawyer looking for something to do, there you go. Uh, International Justice Mission is one of them I'd add to that. But I won't go over each of these. Those are great ways 
to, uh, to get involved. The, other th- the next step, I would say, is attend the call and response screening that we're doing next Sunday. We saw the trailer already. There are pieces of literature and information about it at pretty much every table we have. We've set out a little bit of information about it. We have these cards. You can find out more information about it. There are these small cards if you'd like to take them. They actually have a Minnesota's driver's license on the back of them that depicts uh, the reality that human trafficking happens in our state. Uh, Less than a mile away from where I live in Moundsview, uh, last year, two years ago, a massage parlor was shut down because the massage parlor was found to be a front for a brothel that was oper- that the, the women working in the brothel were, uh, were slaves who were trafficked into our country illegally and were being held there without their documentation against their will, uh, being forced to work in this brothel that had a front as a massage parlor in Moundsview. This happens here. Uh, it is something we need to be aware of. So we're doing this screening for this purpose to build awareness, to rally us as a community so that we can sit together and say, what, how do we respond? What is it that we're called to do in light of this? Uh, a big one is be aware of your surroundings. Some of these organizations on their websites go into great detail about this and they have great information about being aware of your surroundings, particularly if you travel internationally. Uh, they have different I, different uh, checklists that you can go through when you encounter people to recognize if, there's, if they are at risk for being trafficked illegally or people that you encounter in different uh, situations. There are different things that you can look for to recognize if somebody is being trafficked, uh, if they are being moved illegally, if they are a person who's been taken against their will. Uh, and the last thing there, oh, uh, another one is to sponsor a child. We are doing child sponsorships uh, with the Children's Home in Juarez. We'll hear more about that next week uh, when we have Wendy and Aaron here. Uh, but we're making a difference in that city. These are children who are at incredible risk of being exploited, either one way or another. These are children who, without our intervention, are in, dangerous, are in a dangerous place. So we can make a difference by sponsoring a child. you want me to grab a handheld? So we, we can make a difference there. The last one I have there is to, uh, to start with small steps because this is such a huge issue and there is so much that is difficult to, uh, to identify within this of what it is that you can do. Start with small steps. The first and chief among them being one of the simplest, pay attention to the chocolate that you're buying. Now, some of you may not want to hear this one. But pay attention to the chocolate that you're buying. The the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture has found that an estimated 284,000 children work on cocoa farms in West Africa, are involved in hazardous work, are unprotected or enslaved, or have been trafficked. 284,000 children working on cocoa plantations, have been trafficked or are in slavery. So if you're going to buy chocolate and going to consume chocolate, and you want to make sure that you're not contributing to the enslavement and trafficking of children, you need to buy fair trade certified chocolate. That's the only way to know that the chocolate that you're consuming has not been involved in human trafficking or slavery. 
You can go to the big chocolate, and let me give you a hint, it won't have a hard candy shell if it's fair trade certified. Uh, you can go to the big, the big producers of chocolate, and they'll have stuff on their websites about how they're trying to work within the development of West Africa and within those chocolate plantations, but they cannot guarantee that the chocolate that they're buying from their producers was produced without child labor and with fair labor practices. They can't guarantee it because they won't pay the cost of diminishing their supply by eliminating it from their supply. So if you buy chocolate that's not fair trade certified, it is possible, if not likely, that children were used in the production of that chocolate. It is not easy to find fair trade certified chocolate. I'll give you that. It is in most stores, but you have to ask, you have to look. There are some labels on chocolate bars that look like the fair trade certification, but it's not. That's tricky packaging. That, that's a justice issue if you talk to me about that producer. But anyway, uh, you have to pay attention to the certification, find it, ask for it. This is an economic issue that will turn when those companies realize that it is more profitable for them to make sure that children are not used in their production than it is to ignore the issue. And that happens when we're willing to pay a buck more for our chocolate bar. And for me, I'm willing to make the investment. Those are things that we can do. Now, abolition movements always had their roots historically in community. They were just not about rogue individuals making a difference. They came from groups of people together, rooted around a common cause. As the church, we are a group. We have this inherent community together because we share a common bond. We're coming to communion today, and this is what roots us together, is the flesh and blood of Jesus are our rooting together. So this is a beautiful way for us to move into communion, recognizing that if we're going to collectively make a difference, we have this commonality together that is the flesh and blood of Jesus, and that binds us as a community. And in that connection, we can corporately make a difference in the world that we live in when it comes to trafficking. So let me, let's move toward communion. Here's how it will work. Uh, we will have ushers who will dismiss you at rows. Come to the front. There will be communion stations at the front of each aisle. Uh, you can either take it right there and receive it, or some people like to go to the windows to, to have a moment of reflection. Some people like to bring their communion elements back to their seats and reflect there as we sing songs. Uh, whatever helps you connect with Jesus during this time, we ask you to do that. Uh, ushers will, like I said, dismiss you from the aisles. We'll do some, some rites here first to institute communion. We'll also receive offering uh, at this time as well. But we, uh, we have a couple of things here. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have a confession that we say together each week, or each time we come to communion, it will be on the screens. If you'll read this along with me. We confess 
that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy of these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Jesus taught us a prayer. Let's say this prayer together as we come toward communion. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.